So, I've been back for a while, and it's been wonderful in so many ways. As I approached coming back to Scum of the Earth, after a, a long and uh, wonderful, restful sabbatical, um, I saw my duties kind of approaching like this giant tidal wave on the horizon that was going to sweep me away. But you guys made it really, really great to come back, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, the first couple of weeks were nice and slow and easy, and the crap didn't hit the fan until later. So I want to thank you for that. But um, there's something you should know, and this has been known by the leadership here for a while, actually from before I left for sabbatical. Uh, it's been in my mind for several years that Scum really doesn't need a senior pastor in his mid to late 60s. Don't ask me why, but it was one of those nagging thoughts that wouldn't leave me alone. And so, trying to ascertain what I felt God was calling me to was a difficult process, but a good one. And just so you know, we are already in a transition. I will eventually, it's hard to believe, I will not always be the senior pastor of Scum of the Earth Church, even due to my advanced age. At some point, that catches up with you, right? So I'm just trying to be obedient to what I think God's calling me to do, and I don't plan on leaving Scum of the Earth, so don't feel abandoned like orphan children adrift on an open sea. That's not where I'm going. I'm just thinking of it as a job description change. You know, I get to hand over the day-to-day -day running of the church, you know, kind of making sure the staff are all doing their jobs and uh, trying to make sure that we have enough funding to pay for whatever project it is God's got us doing that year to other people. And I would pick up different responsibilities as God would present them. Um, again, not my idea. I think it's God's idea. So those of you who have been worried that I was leading scum down a dead-end road, rejoice. And um, those who feel, uh, you know, like, oh, no, there's not going to be life without Mike Sayers, uh, it's okay. It's not going to happen for a long time. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, three to five years for a transition. Why am I doing three to five years as a transition? Is because almost every other church I've ever heard of does transitions very, very poorly. There's some kind of moral failing on the part of the pastor. The board that hired him, that he formed, rises up and fires his butt. Um, you know, there are financial mismanagements. And there are, you know, just people who burn out and then leave in the middle of the night like people, you know, who are 90 days behind in their rent. I mean, that's what kind of happens in the church way too often. And I'm just trying to forestall that and say, hey, listen, you know, Mike's going to step down to make room for whoever God has next as the point person. Uh, one of the things you should know is the the transition's already begun. Jesse Heilman, whom you know from my six-month sabbatical uh, as head of staff, is really taking on some of my responsibilities already. For six months, he will continue to do those kinds of things. He's a good man. I'm really grateful that he's here. And uh, I think God brought him specifically to Scum of the Earth for such a time as this. So just know these things are already happening. As a result, I want to talk to you for the next two Sundays about leadership. Sky of the Earth is 14 years old, 14 and a half years old. We're doing great. Um, we've got two services now. Uh, God has given us a building. You know, we've got some great people uh, in leadership. And I'm really, really pleased with where God has come of the Earth Church. I think we're poised in the brink of a new season. And I don't think that just my own little head. I think the Holy Spirit's saying that to a number of people, some of prophetic persuasion, so I'm very hopeful in that regard. As a result, 
I think it becomes even more important for a congregation to grow up and to get mature. I mean, back 14 years ago, I felt like we had a church who had one foot firmly planted in the world and all of its craziness. And they were dipping a toe into the kingdom of God. That's how it was back then. Um, it wasn't what I would call a really good reflection of the character of Christ. But we've made remarkable progress since then. And I feel like there are leaders who have grown up who are organic. You don't have to have a title to be a leader in the kingdom of God, obviously. You don't have to have a seminary degree to, to be two or three steps ahead of someone who's following behind you. So I think it's important that we all strive to become better leaders in this time of transition. Looking forward to you all becoming the people that God has called you to be. The leaders in his kingdom. Forget about little tiny scum of the earth church. A lot of you would always be here. But you will go on to other parts of God's kingdom. And I expect God to give you responsibility and authority to lead and to serve his people and the world. And so it's my concern these next two Sundays to try and talk about what does a leader, what does a mature person in the kingdom of God look like? And the place where I really want to go is the Beatitudes. You know, the blessed are parts of that great sermon that Jesus gave. Now, I'm not Jesus, so I can't deliver it all in one shot. And most pastors will take each one of the things I'm going to talk about, each one of the happy are, blessed are statements, and do a whole sermon on them. But I'm so ADD, and you're so ADD, you would never put up with that. So we're going to do like, you know, half and half the next two weeks. So maybe you considered leadership at Scott. Maybe you thought about, I could help out around there. They could use my expertise. This church could use a good swift kick in the rear end. Why don't I volunteer uh, my best friend to be on council? <laughs> I don't know. Let me read you a letter I got from a guy who wanted to be a leader at Scum of the Earth. He was a little frustrated with me. Mike... You call me impatient, disillusioned, unimpressed. Oh, you can call me impatient, disillusioned, unimpressed, frustrated. Whatever you want to call me, that's just fine. To be honest with you, I realize my time and everyone's time upon this earth is quite short. In retrospect, and I'm not going to go through another process of empty words and or having someone blowing smoke up my derriere. Call it what you want, but I have no desire to serve in any type of ministry at Scum of the Earth. Am I angry? A little. To be quite honest with you, I don't see any difference in the way you've handled the desire I have to serve the Lord from any other church or ministry that I've dealt with in the past. I firmly believe that you've never wanted me to serve in any capacity at Scum. You pick and choose whom you want and from talking to other people who are in leadership at your church. I know the process invoked upon them took far less time. I respect you as a pastor and as a man of God, but I really do wish that you would have been truthful with me from the beginning. I'm not going to spend another couple of years waiting for something that obviously is never going to happen. Um, everybody doesn't like me. And um, obviously several other churches' leaderships didn't like this person in leadership either. So I, I'm not feeling bad about not putting this person in leadership because my great uh, desire is to protect the flock. You know, I need someone to feed the sheep, not beat the sheep. And um, I was afraid in this case that this person would end up beating spiritually the people that I love. And so I just kept waiting and waiting and waiting to see if there was any kind of change in character. But, you know, it would go along really good for a while and then it would fall apart. And then it would go along really good for a while and then it would fall apart. 
So what do I look for in a leader at SCUM? Well, I don't think I can go any other place than to the person we all consider the greatest leader of all time, the one whom we all are following, Jesus. And when Jesus talks about the Beatitudes, he really is, in a lot of ways, describing himself, what kind of leader he is. So we're going to go there, starting in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, in verse 3. And Jesus starts off this sermon with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where we begin. It's Jesus' first sentence in the sermon. And therefore, it enjoys a place of prominence, I think, in our thinking, and also in the thinking of the people who were there hearing it for the first time. So what Jesus is saying is the Christian leader must never start at ground level. The Christian leader starts below ground. D.A. Carson said this. He said, trying to define what Jesus meant, to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence upon him. So then, Christianity is a crutch. You guys ever heard that? Your Christianity is just a crutch. It's only good for cripples. But we don't like to see ourselves as cripples. It's kind of offensive to our, our self-image and to our ability to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and our ability to be independent, free-thinking, industrious people. Strong people don't need Christianity as a crutch. We tend to think. The world tends to think. But Jesus said this. He said... In Mark chapter 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever get what Jesus came to give are sick people. People who know that they're crippled spiritually, people who know that they're crippled morally, people who know that they're crippled emotionally, intellectually, maybe even physically. That's who Jesus came for. And by being poor in spirit, we're following Jesus' example. He may be the only leader in the history of the world who did nothing of his own initiative. I mean, seriously, I don't think Jesus did anything on his own. In John 5, he says, I tell you the truth, the Son, meaning himself, can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So Jesus is constantly watching God the Father, what would you have me do? He's not trusting even in himself, and he was God. Which is kind of weird, isn't it? In John 5, he goes on. He says, by myself, I can do nothing I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So even in his thinking process, Jesus is not relying on his own thoughts. He's relying on the thoughts of God the Father to tell him what he should do, what he should judge, how he should see things, how things are to be perceived. In John 8, verse 28, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, 
I'm assuming he's referring to his crucifixion at that point. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. So are you getting the idea that Jesus was poor in spirit? And that if we're going to be like him, we're going to be poor in spirit too. Jesus wants us to rely on him the way that he relied on God the Father. He says this in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man or woman remain in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That means if you're doing something apart from him, out of your own strength, it's not going to count for very much in the kingdom of God. We start below ground. We are poor in spirit. We claim to have nothing. We say that we're crippled. We're relying totally on Jesus. Christians are weird. By being poor in spirit, we access a power much greater than ourselves, a wisdom much greater than our own, a love that we cannot even begin to muster out of our own hearts. This is kind of why we like Pope Francis. Isn't he like the media darling right now? I like Pope Francis. Protestants like Pope Francis. They're not even supposed to like him. Why? Because he's doing the kind of stuff that Jesus did. It's like he's reading Jesus' textbook for leadership. So what's he do? He says, don't give me that huge papal gold and red velvet throne. Don't want to sit in that thing. I'll just take a little white chair. And that'll be good enough for me. Instead of living in the luxurious Vatican grand apartments where he's supposed to live as Pope, he won't go there. No Pope Francis stays in the building where all the employees stay. And he invites the gardeners and all those other people to come to Mass with him in the morning. He eats with them. Instead of having his food brought, you know, specially prepared. And he, it's not like he's just doing this now. He did this when he was a Archbishop in Argentina. He took public transportation. They couldn't get him to get in the Pope mobile. And the Pope mobile is a good thing because there's bulletproof glass and stuff like that, right? But he gets on the bus with the rest of the guys. He goes around town. We like Pope Francis. It seems like he's poor in spirit. As much as you could be when you're at the head of billions of Catholics. We've been in the season as leadership at SCUM of what we like to call palms down. If you hold things in your hand, you're always palms up, right? What happens when you go palms down? They drop out of your hands. So we've said to the leadership, what do you hold to be the important parts of scum of the earth? What do you hold as our, our main philosophies and our ideals? What are those? I'll tell you what, we want you to go palms down. Let those things fall out because we're just going before the Lord with nothing. So, you know, if you've got to shake your hands to get that stuff off or just take it and just, you know, because it's sticky to you, like we want you to go palms down. We've been doing this for quite a while now, for months. Palms down. Why? Because we're trying to be poor in spirit. We're trying to say, not us, God, not our ideas, but your ideas. And the first step in that is to let go of what we consider important. And so we're doing that. Let's go on. Verse 4, Jesus continues, Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. Now, I think this has to do with the proper perception of reality. A leader who is like Jesus 
should be in mourning over the status quo. Let me put it this way. If the status quo is working, there is no need for leadership. Managers can do just fine. You don't need leaders, people who make things happen, if the status quo is great. And what Jesus is saying is that leaders like himself mourn over what's happening in the earth as it is. The scriptures tell us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sometimes the mourning is a result of sin. Sometimes other people sin against us. Sometimes our own sin against us and against those we love. Sometimes the sin is a result of diabolical forces that are beyond our control. I'll just say it, the devil and demons and the destruction that they cause in people's lives and in the nations of the earth. Sometimes it just comes from the fact that we live in a fallen world. And there are things like hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes and floods. And if you are mourning over those kinds of things, then maybe you can be a leader in the kingdom of God. It is from this mourning that a vision of a better future can emerge. Bill Hybels, a pastor in Chicago, calls this whole idea holy discontent. What keeps you awake at night? What are the problems that you see around you that just refuse sleep to come to your eyes? Is it the plight of the homeless? Maybe there's people in prisons. Maybe there's racial discord that keeps you up at night. People's addictions that are destroying their lives that keep you up at night. Maybe it's modern-day slavery. And there's way too much of that. Maybe it's men and women who live without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ day in and day out in their dusty, dim, mundane existence. And your heart cries out for them to know Jesus and what he can do in their hearts and their minds and their souls and their bodies. You see, this beatitude is where identification with the plight of people takes place. Followers need to understand that their leader gets it. Because if you get what people are crying about and mourning about, then they will trust you enough to follow you. It's because Jesus suffered that we identify with him. It's because he suffered that he's a worthy savior. None of us could relate to him if Jesus had never gone through what he went through. Hebrews 5.8 says that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. I understand what it's like. If Jesus is crying at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, we know that he understands the pain of loss. I was with a good friend just yesterday down in Castle Rock whose mother is dying. She's in her last hours. The tears are many and they flow. And Mike, could you please come down? Could you spend some time with me and my sister? 
The reason I can follow Jesus as a Savior because he understands what it was like to mourn. What causes you to mourn? What keeps you up at night? For some of you, it's relationships that have gone awry. No, it's why, why do Mary and I have such large hearts for people going through marital difficulties? Because we did. Why do people feel like it's safe to come and talk to Mary and I when they're having problems in their marriage? Because we did. If someone appears to be like the wedding cake couple, you know, Barbie and Ken, you don't want to go to them when things are bad, right? All right. Let's go on. Matthew 5.5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Now, meekness is one of those words that we get wrong a lot. We kind of think of it as like somebody who's kind of mousy and someone who's not really forceful at all. You know, someone who's stuttering when he tries to talk. Someone who looks at their shoes when, you know, they meet people for the first time. That's not meek, okay? That's something else, but it's not meek. Meekness in the biblical understanding of the word is strength that is under control. Strength that is under control. The word picture, actually, in the Greek is that of a horse that is being led by a rider by a bit and a bridle. Great strength in the horse under control. The rider wants to go left, the horse goes left. Wants to go right, wants to gallop, wants to trot, whatever. Backwards, forwards. That's meekness. The horse is exhibiting meekness. Great strength, but under total control. So basically, a good leader doesn't throw her weight around or his weight around an organization or the office or the church or the neighborhood or the PTA or the mom's group. A good leader who is meek is kind with the use of power. A good leader delegates. Zephaniah 3.12 reads this. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The only way you can be meek is if you trust in God. It's when a leader is insecure about himself or herself that he or she begins bullying either emotionally or physically, subordinates. You know, there's, um, well, it's just news, so I might as well talk about it. Made the front page of the New York Times. There's a pastor in Seattle, super large church, great communicator, amazing leader, who appears to have a problem with meekness. His strength is not under control. The number one Problem that other pastors in the church and people go to the church are having with this amazing leader is that he's a bully. He doesn't get his way. He'll berate. He'll spiritualize. He'll threaten. Made the front page in the New York Times just this week. might be some kind of announcement today. He may be stepping down for a time because the pressure is building and building and building and building. And people finally say, we can't take it anymore. We're not going to follow you. And why won't they follow him? Because in that area of his life, he's not looking like Jesus at all. Now, here's the deal. Jesus loves this leader enough to let this all come out. 
This leader is not being abandoned by God. Rather, this leader is being disciplined by God so that in the future, he'll be a better leader. Now, he might not have 15,000 people in his church, but he will have people who feel cared for and protected and loved and healed as opposed to being beaten by his strength, which is out of control. So, I'm not giving up on Mark Driscoll. I think God will still use him in great ways. But here's the deal. It's in giving the ministry away that we inherit it as leaders. We try to hold on to that which is ours exclusively, like, I don't know what you're doing. It's my Bible study. These are my friends. This is my potluck right here. Nobody better mess with it. It's my bike shop. It's my mom's group. I mean, when you start doing that, you're not showing meekness because meekness trusts in God. Okay, yeah, we, we can do it some other ways. When things aren't going our way, we're tempted to use power in order to feel secure, but the meek leader trusts in God. So you don't always get your own way. I don't always get my own way. I try not to get, always get my own way. Sometimes I have to have people tell me, Mike, you're playing the senior pastor card a little too often lately. And I respect that, because I don't want to be that guy. I want to be able to have any strength God's given me under control. John Pepper says it this way. We'll close this section with his quote. So I think the promise that the meek shall inherit the earth is intended by the Lord to give us the strength to endure in meekness when the natural inclination would be to defend ourselves or retaliate or give way to fretful anger. If we are meek, if we keep our pistols in the holsters, God says, I will give you a reward that's as big as the whole earth. So when you're tempted to just protect what is yours, remember this. Remember this. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus continues, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I'm going to go back to the prophet Jeremiah really quick. And um, I think because he's talking about people who hunger and thirst. And Jeremiah is kind of talking about the same thing. Actually, he's quoting the Lord in his prophecy. And Jeremiah quotes the Lord saying this, Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And number two, they have dug their own cisterns. They've dug their own water retention tanks. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. We're all like this. We're all idiots. Instead of going to Jesus, who is the spring of all that is good, we're going, I I can do this. I can make it happen. Our whole bodies, our souls are hungry and thirsty. They are. There is a longing. There is an inevitable longing in every one of us that we just can't seem to fill. We're restless. Sometimes your life is like this. You're thinking, you know, everybody's life is better than mine. I'm looking around. The grass is greener every place else. I'm looking. 
You know, my job sucks. Her job is great. My relationships are terrible. That relationship is awesome. I don't even have a relationship. Look, all those people in relationships over there. And here's the tragedy. In this very state of yours, of neediness, thirstiness, and hunger, instead of going to God to fill that, whatever it is, we're trying to make sure we can handle it ourselves. You know? You just wear a dress that's a little bit lower cut. You can find a boyfriend. You don't need to rely on God. You can just go out and maybe tell little white lies in order to get more sales so that you have more commission. I can do that because I need more money at home. I got bills to pay. You know, I'm not getting everything I want from my friends. So I think I'll whine and complain a little bit louder and a little bit more often. I will try to manipulate my husband, or I will try to scold my wife into giving me what I think I need because I'm so desperately unhappy. This is what Jesus is talking about. And then everything turns to ashes in your hands. We go for the short term, the temporary, the backfiring pleasures of porn or romantic comedies or drugs or alcohol or, or sexual encounters or new stuff, new toys. The thrill of this stuff kind of leaves a sediment of bitterness in our hearts. Even the drugs and alcohol can't keep you from waking up into a real world again and again. Day after day, they don't change your messed up relationships. They normally mess them up more. I mean, can somebody explain to me the whole purpose of fake tans? I mean, seriously, I'm thinking like, what need in your life are you trying to fill with a fake tan? I'm sorry if I'm stepping on your toes here. I just don't get it. We drink at broken cisterns. We eat bread that does not satisfy. C.S. Lewis said this, and you all know how much I love C.S. Lewis quotes. One of my favorites. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You know, good leaders, good people in the kingdom of God, they're not just satisfied with their own Righteousness and holiness alone. No. They want social justice in the earth. They cry for both. They want things to be right everywhere and also inside of here. There's a hunger and a thirst for what is right. It's an appetite that's whetted by the vision that they carry. Do we have the courage to speak out about what's wrong in ourselves and in society? Do we? Do you have the courage to speak out about what's wrong with your family? What's wrong with your church? What's wrong at school? What's not right with the teacher? What's not right and fair and just? And I'm not just talking about, you know, clicking on 
a like button from Facebook. Like, that is not hungering and thirsting for righteousness because, you know, you like somebody's AOS challenge, the ice bucket thing. Okay, that is, it's not the same thing. I'm saying lead. Lead. Lead a world that's fallen, doesn't know where it's going, doesn't know how to get there, doesn't know righteousness if it smacked it in the face. I'm saying lead toward righteousness. What keeps you up at night? Lead in that direction. Be wise in your responses, especially on Facebook. I mean, if you want to pound the pulpit, if you want to get up, you know, with a megaphone to rouse a deaf world, like Facebook may not be the right place. I'm just saying this right now. Because you come off as a self-righteous prig. My son, um, one of my sons, was getting a lot from a certain Christian leader. Actually met with him on a couple occasions. And uh, really was gaining a lot from his wisdom. The guy's almost prophetic in his view of the world and what's right and what's wrong. But on Facebook, he's a jerk. Comes across so harshly to people. And now my son really wants little to do with him. It's a loss for my son. Why? Let's talk about... Why? It might not have to be that way. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. On the heels of a pronouncement about righteousness and justice, all of a sudden, Jesus balances this with a statement about mercy. Now, there can't be any mercy without justice. That is, if unless there's some kind of standard behavior, some kind of right thing to do, some kind of just way of going about things, and you miss that, you blow it, you don't do it, you do the opposite, then unless that happens, there's no need for mercy. You understand what I'm saying? There can be no mercy without justice. Mercy only only comes into play when something's not been done right. Mercy embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering and needy. Micah 6.8, the prophet of the Old Testament, says this, He has showed you, O man, O woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy. Now, wait a minute. Act justly, love mercy. Act justly, love mercy. Which one should I love? Mercy. Which one should I do? Justice. Righteousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, get a clue about the character of God. He loves things to be done well and right and good, and just. But you know what? He loves mercy maybe a little bit more. And thank the Lord for that part of his character. If you know me, you know how, how badly I'm in need of God's mercy. Balancing justice and mercy is, is really difficult for us. And if we're going to be good leaders in the kingdom of God, we've got to start to be able to live in that tension. It's by being merciful that relationships are maintained, not by being right all the time. Without mercy, people lose heart. And no amount of assessment, no amount of evaluation, no amount of correction can encourage people to go on 
if they feel no mercy coming from a leader. So, you know, maybe you're a manager at work. Think about what it was like when you were an employee and you were late three times in a row. A little bit of mercy goes a long way. But here's the question that we're left with. Should a merciful person always show mercy? For example, can a Christian be a prosecuting attorney? Or is that job description out of the sphere of ability for a Christian to be a prosecuting attorney? Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be a parent who corrects and disciplines and maybe sometimes even spanks the child for disobedience instead of turning the other cheek all the time when the kid is being insolent and willful? Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be an employer who pays good wages for excellent work but dismisses irresponsible employees who do shoddy work? Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be a state legislator who enacts laws that give stiff penalties for drunk driving or for child abuse? Can you be merciful with your spouse and still call them on behavior that is hurting you, hurting them, hurting the family, hurting the church, hurting the community? Can you do that? My answer is, we're going to have to live in the tension of these two blessed ours for the rest of our lives. Because there is no mercy without justice. And yet God says, if you've got to make a mistake, let's make a mistake on the side of mercy. Let's do justly but let's love mercy and let's walk humbly with our God because, you know, we don't know everything. We don't know all the answers. I don't know all the answers. I'm doing the best I can with what God has given me. And you know what? If I haven't been the leader that you wanted for the past 5, 10, 14 years, I'm sorry. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. There's no time in my life, and I've said this story before, but I'll say it again for those of you who have never heard this. The time in my life when mercy made the biggest impact was when I was having an emotional affair with a woman at work. I was a young Christian. I was probably not even 30. Mary and I were having very difficult times as a husband and wife, and there was a girl at work who was very understanding and very beautiful and like to listen to my problems, and, um, you know, I began to have these thoughts about her, and what was going on was I was imagining being with her, although I was never physically unfaithful, mentally I was there, and you know what Jesus says about that. And so I'm dealing with this guilt that is in my life because of it, and so I went and I talked to my pastor. I was scared shitless. I'm serious. I was scared to go talk to the man about what was going on in my heart. I thought I was a worship leader, you know, a Bible study leader. I thought for sure I'd be stripped of all those responsibilities, that maybe I'd even be shunned by the church and say, I'm sorry, Mike, you've got to, you can't come for a while, take a vacation. You know, we really can't have you polluting everybody else in the church. And this guy was not known for his mercy. He was kind of a lion of a man. But I was so guilt-ridden. So we had breakfast one day, and I just let it all out and told him what was going on. And he reacted in a way I never expected. Instead of berating me, instead of beating me up, 
Instead of telling me how holy he was and how much of a jerk I was, he said, Mike, I'm so sorry. He goes, I know it's difficult. I know what it feels like. Let me tell you about my own struggles. So he began to tell me about an affair that he had had with his secretary for years before he came to Christ. And then how he came to Christ and had to stop that and then tell his wife and they had to work through it all and how bad it was. And he goes, Mike, you don't want to have to go through that. An emotional affair is always a precursor to a physical affair. You have to nip this thing in the bud, is what he said. And I think I was so overwhelmed by his mercy that I gladly said, okay, yes, fine. I do not want to go down the road that you went down. And so I nipped it in the bud. It never got past an emotional affair. And why was I able to do that? It's because of the mercy of my shepherd. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Pray with me. Lord God, we want to be people who follow you. We want to be people that you deem worthy for others to follow into the kingdom, into your glorious, everlasting, loving, beautiful kingdom. But we don't want any of our friends to wind up not going to heaven. We don't want them to miss out on a life that's full of love with you and the community that you provided on the earth, the, the, the freedom from guilt, the, the forgiveness of sin. Lord, make every one of us here at Scum of the Earth those kind of leaders that you can use in your kingdom for your glory, not just for now, but forever. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, our example. Amen. Thanks for listening.